It's my pleasure, and aren't you so pleased that Dr. French and the media guy, whose name I didn't get yet, got us up and running on time. What was his name? Josh. Yes, well, thank you all, because I love to start on time. It's a real exercise for me to avoid getting anxious when we don't start on time. <laughs> all right, well, practice is good, you know, practice makes better. All right, brain benders. Let's anybody that's not been here before. Okay, here's the rule when I'm speaking. Get up, move around anytime you want to. Get up and stand, pace in the back, do whatever you want. And I'm serious about that. So Please do that. If you've got the kind of brain that needs to move to learn, which in some studies is 50% of the people in the study, then get up and move around. And when you cut that data by gender, who usually needs to move more, males or females? Males. You know, in the United States, they've done studies about any denomination you want to check. And at their main service, two-thirds of the population will be who, male or female? Female. And the third of the population that's male, will they be asleep or awake? A lot of them will be asleep because they're not getting up and moving around and, and they're males that need to move to learn. So I keep telling ministers, take out the last two rows of pews, Tell the men they can stand at the back. Not a problem. They'll probably stay awake. All right, let's go. Brain benders. Top. First box. Far right. Move to the right. What else? Right side. Good. There's lots of things if we wanted to take the time. Pardon? <laughs> hmm. There's a few things I don't discuss. Politics is one of them especially right now. <laughs> All right, second on the left. Travel in style, excellent, word in a word. Third on the left. Stressed out, that works. Bottom left. It could be, could be almost any of those. It could be unending stress. Um, so it's whatever your brain thinks of. Top right. Waking up. Good. Brain doesn't care if the letters go forwards or backwards. Second on the right. Who's in first class? Me. <laughs> Not really, but... So you could say, I'm in first class. Third on the right. So what's the phrase? Come on, your brains can do it. What, is, what would that mean? It doesn't add up. Fabulous. Or it's wrong. Either one of those would work. But it's kind of fun. Sometimes I'm doing this for young people and they're talking to each other and they're going, is that something I missed in algebra? No. It's just wrong. It doesn't add up. And bottom right. You stress. There you go. Excellent. All right. We'll do one little exercise. These are age-proofing. 
There's lots of them on my website. I encourage you to start now. And I was talking to a lady just before we began. One of the current, well, there's a couple that I usually talk about. The first one is 10 minutes of reading aloud every single day. If you've got kids, grandkids, read to them. A lady came up to me after I said that, and she said, I live alone. And I said, and your point would be? She goes, who am I going to read to? I said, yourself. You know, prop a toy on the chair and read to it. I don't care. Just read aloud. Ten minutes a day. It's age-proofing. And um, the second one, hmm, what was the second one? I got so busy talking about the first one, I forgot about the second one. Yes, thank you. You know, you can ask anybody in the audience, and a brain will always get you back on track. It's fabulous. And I have a frontal right brain lead, and spoken language is in the frontal left lobe. So just to talk to you, I'm continually reaching across that bridge and trying to grab words. Sometimes I can't think of the word. All I have to say is, what word do I want? There's always a brain in the group that can give me the word. So the second anti-aging strategy is learn to use a computer. Now, I know that most of you young people, that's ridiculous to say that for you. You, you grew up using computers. But some of us didn't. And one Internet search on a computer will challenge your brain as much as reading an average book from beginning to end. So any of you who are not yet computer literate, get moving, because it's wonderful for your brain. All right, here's the, here's the little puzzle. I want you to read this. You can read it out loud. I don't care. You can read it to, silently. I want you to tell me how many times the letter F, finished files, are in this paragraph. Oops. <laughs> That's helpful, isn't it? Hmm. <laughs> Hold on, I'm losing my battery. All right, now here's a gulp. Okay, how many have you got? I think we've got a difference of opinion here. Sounds like a typical board meeting. Some of you, maybe, were looking for the letter that sounds like finished files. Some of you who are more visual, not auditory, aren't worried about the sound. You're looking for the shape. So there's one, two. Tell me if I miss one. Three. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Did I get them all? That's good for me because I'm not visual, I'm auditory. And we miss a lot depending on what our sensory preference is. So you, you did very well tonight, I'd say. Of course, I, I could expect that. We're all part of the commonwealth, right? 
All right. This is, I'm sharing with you brand new research about how different the female brain processes stressors compared to the male brain. And it's really made a difference in how people who understand this information work with each other. So sometimes people say to me, boy, I wish we could get rid of, I wish I could get the stress out of my life. I don't think you really want that because the absence of stress is death. Stress is just the name we give to the brain and body's ability to do something different. So if I'm sitting here and thinking I want to stand up, I just stress myself because I asked my body to change and do something different. So you really do not want to get rid of stress in your life. You want to understand your stressors and minimize some of them and manage the others. But if you're alive, you're going to be having some stress. The bad news is that unmanaged stress can actually start to kill brain cells in that middle layer, the hippocampus, which is your search engine. Uh, maybe we ought to do a little experiment. Pull up in your brain's working memory a picture of the face of the person who was your mother figure growing up. You got it? Everybody's got it. All right. Your hippocampus just went out and searched your entire brain in a split second for all the little pieces in many different cells that pulled together create that picture. It's amazing. It's better than any search engine we've got on the planet. Now, was the face complete? Was it intact? Or was there an ear missing or part of the chin or an eye? Everybody got an intact picture? That's well, a relief if you did. Because if something's missing, it's highly likely that some of the cells in your brain have died. And the pieces that are missing were in those cells and those cells are gone. So it's really worthwhile keeping that brain going. And not only killing those cells, but certainly damaging body organs, part of the immune system, increases your risk of disease and shortens your life. That's no place I'm interested in going. In fact, the latest research I heard at UC Berkeley, if you take care of your brain and immune system, we are capable of easily living to be 120 with good mental, emotional, physical, and spiritual function. But what happens is many people say, oh, my dad died when he was 80. Guess I'll be dying around that age too. No, at least half the factors that decide your longevity outside of some catastrophic accident or something are within your partial, if not complete, control. So I expect to lecture till I'm 100. Did I hear some people laughing? And then I'll have 19 or 20 good years of retirement. And one night I'll go to bed and go to sleep and everything will shut off at the same time and I won't wake up. And that is healthy aging. No dementia, no autoimmune diseases, stuff like that. So that's what I'm aiming for. You might want to get on the bandwagon with me. 
All right. The brain, no surprise, is the very first body system to recognize a stressor. It does it instantly, and it will stimulate then the stress response. So you can get a little cortisol, one of those chemicals that will help you manage stress. But here's the deal. The brain can keep stimulating the stress response for up to 72 hours after a traumatic event or longer if you keep rehearsing it. And that's the problem. Something happens to us, and instead of, it's just a news item. Oh, I had a flat tire on my way home today. Fortunately, I have AAA. I don't know if you have AAA in Australia, but fortunately, I have AAA. Guys came, changed the tire. I'm here, good to go. Or you can tell everybody in your family and all your friends for days about how awful it was when I got a flat tire. My goodness, I almost ran off the road. I was terrified. Well, you can still be having a stress response three weeks later. So when something happens to you, it's fine to tell somebody about it. But just try to make it a news item. After all, that was then, this is now. And you really want to avoid triggering that stress response because you'll pour out cortisol and that will start doing a number on your hippocampus. All right. Stress management is critical for everybody, I believe. That was an interesting sound. It's what? Oh, all right. Well, I'm auditory. I hear those things. <laughs> Stress management is critical for everybody, but especially for females. And I'm going to give you the rat studies that show exactly how critical that is. It, the studies have been reported in molecular psychiatry. And you don't need to worry about the big names and all that stuff. Just get the concept. So when the brain recognizes a stressor and begins to respond to it, puts out some of that cortisol stuff, but it also puts out something called corticotropin releasing factor, or CRF. As it puts out that CRF, which is both a hormone and a neurotransmitter, which is interesting. It binds to receptors on cells in the locus ceruleus, an alarm center deep in the brainstem. All right, what does that mean in plain, ordinary English, although you've probably got that? Here's a cutaway of the brain. Here's the brainstem. Deep in the brainstem, there is an alarm system. And it's designed to recognize a stressor and then move us toward one of the stress responses. Fight, flight, tend, befriend, or conserve, withdraw. And we'll talk about those three. In the female brain, something different happens in that locus ceruleus in the brainstem. The way the researchers put it is when the going gets tough in the female brain, the female brain gets macho. So here is a cell in the locus ceruleus. Do you see these little blue things around the edge? Those are docking stations, if you will. Picture little boats. What do you call it in Australia when we call it a, 
Well, I don't know. I, I, I think a pier, and then you have slips into which boats go. All right, so we're all on the same page regardless of what we call it. All right. So think of this as a circular pier or jetty, and here's all the little places where a boat can pull in and unload its contents. Its contents is that CRF stuff. So in response to a stressor, these receptors, these docking stations, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven on this cell, in the female brain remain right out there on the cell membrane, meaning seven different boats can dock, dumping off their CRF. The female brain takes the full hit. Here's the male brain. The male brain is very different. Same type of locus aurelius cell. But the minute the male brain recognizes a stressor, it goes to work deactivating some of these docking stations. I have no idea the reason. That's another little chat I'm going to have someday. So you can see that one's already been pulled inside. Here are these green beret things. One's been pulled inside. This one is just about in. This one's on its way in. And so there's four left. It may pull in another one yet. So that when the male brain gets the same stressor, it hurries up and pulls in the docking stations, which means fewer boats can dock and fewer of this hormone neurotransmitter is dumped into the cell. So really, it, the cell is not that stressed. The male brain is not nearly as stressed as the female brain with the same incident. Now, think about a male or female you know well, and you both experience the same stressor. And the female is all twitterpated. And the male says something like, get over it. Oh, well, that's really helpful. The male brain can get over it because it's only taken in half of the stuff. So it's really a different way of looking at how we communicate and help each other because the male recognizing that the female brain is going to be much more stressed than his by this incident can now get into his problem-solving mode and try to figure out ways to help moderate the stress for her. But if you don't know this, you can't do that. And I can't tell you the number of times I've literally heard men say, I don't know what's wrong with her. And, you know, yeah, it wasn't wonderful, but it's over with. I don't know why she just doesn't get over it. Well, because she's got more than twice the CRF stuff dumped into her cells. Okay, so you got the picture? Up and down means yes. All right. So here they are side by side, just so you can see it. And you can go to my website and you can get these slides and you can look up the actual research if you want to. It's fascinating. So here's the female brain there. All of those docking stations are out there just waiting for boats to dump in corticotropin releasing factor. And here's the male brain and there's only four and maybe another one will get pulled in. Half the stress load. Who knew? So in general, it appears that the female brain is more sensitive to this and to stressors. We are seeing this in the people that we work with in California, males and females who've come back from the war with post-traumatic stress disorder. 
And we now know enough about brain function in those layers that if somebody wants to work on it, we can help them pretty quickly learn to upshift and get out of that reactive subconscious layer where's, where there's all the flashbacks and so on and so forth. So we help them do that. It's taking the women three to four times longer to recover from PTSD than the males. And we didn't understand that until we started to get this research. Uh, Deborah Bangasser, who is uh, uh, one of the foremost researchers on stress, says, even in the absence of any stress, the female stress signaling system is more sensitive from the start. And I don't think I brought the data with me, but there's lots of data that if a female has a really stressful pregnancy, stressful both in health and environment and so on, let's say that she's unmarried and she got pregnant and her family kicked her out, which happens way too often, and she's carrying a female fetus, that female fetus may develop a different brain nervous system structure than it would and for the rest of that child and then adult female's life will respond to stressors differently. So we really need to take a look at what happens when people are pregnant and how we support and help them, whether or not we like their behaviors. This is nothing about behaviors. This is about you contribute to their stress, and I think then we bear some responsibility if the child is born with a brain that developed differently because of the increased stress. So three types of stressors. The U-stress, that was one on the brain benders. It's desirable stress. Yes, you're going to have some effect to your brain and body because it's stress, but if you choose it, there's very little negative effect. So it's stressful for me to come to Australia. It's 14 and a half hours on the plane. That's a stressor for me. But I do lots of things to moderate that stress, and I choose it. You know, Dr. French did not have a gun to my head. So because I chose it, I have very few side effects from the trip. Distress is undesirable, outright negative stress. If you could possibly avoid it, do so. And mistress, <laughs> I, know I got no farther than that on one of my seminars, and a lady said, oh, yes, I know about that. My husband had a mistress. So I started spelling it with two S's just so we could get that a little clearer. <laughs> it's unrecognized stress that in the long term can often be more harmful than distress. For example, if you do a lot of computer work behind a computer screen, how frequently do you need to get up for at least 15 seconds and move around? every 30 minutes. I have to set a, an alarm sometimes because if I'm really interested in the topic, ah, the time just goes by. But you need to get up every 30 minutes for at least 15 seconds and move around and, I don't know, do some jumping jacks, whatever you want, but to get a new fresh um, load of blood, if you will, rushing through your brain. All right, let's talk just a little bit about each one of these. Here are the kinds of things that are stressful. These are just examples. But if you choose them, you moderate the stress. 
you know, you're going to get some, you're going to college, those of you who are in school who are in this room, and you're going to have examinations and papers to submit and all that stuff that's stressful. But it's intermittent, and you're choosing it, and so in the end, you'll be better off and you'll be fine. Have you ever heard anybody say that their wedding was the most stressful day they'd had in their entire lives? Oh, that's a pity. They must have been worried about everything trying to be absolutely flawless. Okay, so you're getting married. Have fun with it. Two, if you can think ahead and avoid distress, do so. Can't always happen. But here's some of the examples of what would be considered distress. I live in California and we have earthquakes. I'm not the least bit worried about an earthquake. I've been through so many of them, it's not even funny. What terrifies me are cyclones. I just got out of the Bahamas ahead of Isaac. You know, when you're not around something, it can be a little bit more frightening. And certainly, everything that's going on in the wars that we're seeing right now, that's very, very stressful. Mistress, we miss the impact. And don't do something about it. And then in the end, it can be just as distressful as distress. Worry and anxiety are huge. You know, as we start getting more of this information, it, the Bible and the spirit of prophecy are just filled with information that tie right into this. If you're a Bible student, you know many of the texts that tell you to stop worrying. Don't worry about anything. Not a thing. You know, get busy loving yourself and others because you cannot be fearful if you're loving and filled with gratitude. And this is all playing into what we're learning about stress. Work stress, just a couple of slides because I think these, these studies are amazing. Employees under high work stress with high demands and low control and organizational injustice and unfortunately we see that everywhere because organizations are just people and some of the people they hire are dysfunctional so there's organizational injustice what does that do to the employees it increases their norepinephrine levels and pushes them into fight flight and that's just a recipe for ulcers and all kinds of things Increase in inflammation, these little um, particles in the body that raise the body temperature and all that stuff. And they have a 50% increased risk of coronary artery disease and death associated with coronary artery disease. That should behoove organizations to take a look at, at how well they're functioning. Work stress more. Workers with high stress are twice as likely to be absent five or more days a year. 40% of job turnovers due to stress, 60 to 80% of accidents on the job are stress-related. Emotions stress. We'll be talking about um, emotional intelligence Saturday afternoon. Emotion stress is huge. Do you remember hearing in the past about the type A personality? Well, they've changed the name. It's now the AHA personality, the personality that has a lot of anger, hostility, and aggressiveness. And people who fall into that category, they, you can predict 
based on questionnaires, coronary artery disease, calcification, high blood pressure, atherosclerosis, so on and so forth. The effects can equal smoking and an abysmal diet. Who knew? Social stressors. People who are AHA and have a lot of social stressors, it seems to tip them over the edge. It seems to exacerbate them. Exaggerated physiological responses when they perceive that someone's harassing, harassing them. If they're looking at a person and looking at that person's facial expressions and think they're seeing anger or disgust or contempt. This contempt piece is interesting. There's a researcher in the United States who's got this nailed. Couples who are having a problem and come to him for counseling, he says, fine, I'll, I'll do a session with you. We're going to record the session and then I will give you some idea of what I think is going on between the two of you and whether or not I can take you on as a client. He takes a video of the entire interview for an hour and then he goes through it slide frame by frame and he, he watches to see if there is any contempt expressed on either face. And if he sees contempt, he counts how many seconds it was there, how many times it was there, and he's got this formula. And depending on where the couple fall, he is able to predict a high risk of divorce within two years. He doesn't tell them that. But when he follows them, he is on the money. So something about contempt. Unmanaged stress reactions, and I mentioned that we know of three of them, fight, flight, tend, befriend, and conserve, withdraw. They are more dangerous risk factors for cancer and heart disease than either cigarette smoking or high cholesterol foods. And what do they do? Well, they decrease your ability to learn. If, if I was going to be here longer and we could do some more sessions like downshifting, this, we would say this would downshift the brain out of the conscious layer into the subconscious layer, and you can't learn. Oh, you can learn some things, but you can't learn cognitively because that means you've got to have conscious thought about what you're learning. So a lot of little kids go to school downshifted because it's really stressful at home, and they can't learn. They just don't learn. Your libido disappears. And we often see this in couples who are desperately trying to have a child. And it's so stressful. Can't have a child, so finally they say, okay, fine, we're just going to adopt a child. Or we'll be a foster parent. And give them six months, what happens? She's pregnant. The stress resolved and the libido went up and everything's working. And you will lose your, a third of your energy potential. So just think about how you feel now. And if you're really having a lot of unmanaged stress, you've got a third less energy. So what can you do in terms of emotion stress? Well, you embrace what's called a cognitive behavioral approach. Be careful about your food choices. Change your patterns of thinking related to anxiety. Get enough sleep. 
Learn to have periods of relaxation every day. The adult brain needs to play. Not quite as much as a child, but it needs to play, and many adults don't play. Reassess your goals and priorities. Are you acting out your own agenda or somebody else's expectations for you? What are your habitual thoughts, beliefs, expectations? Know what you believe. Know what works for your brain. There is not another brain on this planet that has the right to tell you what to believe. They can live what they believe and share it with you if you're interested, but they don't have the right to tell you what to believe. That's the deity only. Change your environments if you need to. Change your friends if you need to. Change some of the people you're hanging out with. And learn to quickly recognize the protective emotions and what they're trying to tell you and hone skills to manage them. And the protective emotions are anger, fear, and sadness. Are you familiar with George Burns? I used to enjoy George Burns. Now, George Burns smoked a cigar his whole life. But he lived a very long time. So evidently, his way of managing stress compensated for his smoking. He did say, however, if I knew I was going to live this long, I would have taken better care of myself. So how long are you planning to live? Figure that out and maybe best start taking better care of yourself now. All right, here's the three reaction forms. Fight, flight, tend, befriend, and conserve, withdraw. Are you familiar with all three of those? All right. You will be in just a few seconds. Fight, flight. You're, you're familiar with that one, right? Well, interesting new research tends to be implemented primarily by the male brain. The female brain sometimes goes into fight flight for seconds or minutes, but rarely stays there. This happens to be a male brain thing. It's the most studied of the three reaction forms, and if you don't manage it, it can lead to ulcers, high blood pressure, and I could sit up here and list off the chronic diseases. Now, Ten Befriend is a relatively new reaction form that's been discovered. Shelley Taylor is the researcher. I wish I could claim her as a relative. The woman's brilliant. So females sometime will exhibit fight-flight, but under stress they fall back to Ten Befriend. What does that mean? It means that they, if they're, in, if they're taking care of children, they start to really pay attention to the children, uh, and they want to connect with others. That's probably a good thing that women have that, because in most cultures, women are responsible for the bulk of child care. It's got a downside if women don't understand this, because what it means is it pushes them to try harder, see if they can do it better, get it right. So what we find in California is that a woman will be in an environment in which she is being abused, battered, and something really egregious happens and the police come to the home and they take her out of the home and they put her in a shelter. And three or four months later, her broken bones are healed and her bruises are gone and she's ready to be discharged. 
if we don't teach her about 10 befriend and help her make a decision where what's she likely to do go right back into the same abusive environment and when she does that she is at high risk for being killed so we need to teach our young people about this if you don't know how to use this or don't manage it right it can lead you to tolerate the intolerable and as I said women who go back into the environment in which they've been battered are at high risk for death and then conserve withdraw both genders do this it doesn't matter conserve withdraw we sometimes see this when a family has an unexpected death you know a child is killed or a spouse dies and the brain goes into this conserve withdraw piece and you watch them they change their daily activities they change what they do sometimes for several months but certainly for days or weeks and it's like the brain is saying I can't solve this one there's nothing I can do about this let's just sit here and see if we can heal and recover from it and then gradually eventually hopefully they get back get work and everything else now this is the biggest cause of divorce in couples who have a major trauma in their family because he will go into fight-flight and he'll want to fix it or make somebody pay for it or something like that when he can't fix it that can be very difficult for the male brain and he sometimes will leave the environment leave the marriage that reminded him that he couldn't fix this so males need to be helped to understand that some things you can't fix so accept it and move on and the female who will most likely go into conserve withdraw big time and is just sitting there sad and depressed and he doesn't understand this because he wants to do something about this and he can't get her motivated to move and so now they start having a lot of trouble and they can they can end up unfortunately divorced all right so stress is a relative concept meaning it's different strokes for different folks our stress responses are learned we tend to learn them in our family of origin and I think beyond that and again we don't have time to talk about cellular memory epigenetics but you can go to my website and you can look up brain references and click on cellular memory and learn some of that new information that the behaviors that your parents and grandparents and great-grandparents exhibited get loaded into the protein strands in the nucleus of cells that have a nucleus and they can be passed on from generation to generation so now we understand how come you see behaviors being repeated generation after generation nothing to do with genes and chromosomes that's genetics but it's related to epigenetics which is the reason you need to be really careful what kind of behaviors you learn because they will that cellular memory will be passed on to any children that are biological children of yours 
Oh, let me digress long enough to tell you one little story because it's so interesting. My middle son was a savior. You know, that's the psychological term that he was always for the underdog. He always wanted to help the underdog. If somebody was getting put down, he would take their part. Okay, certain amount of that is fine. One day he came home. He says, Mom, I've met a girl. I said, well, that's nothing new. What's special about this girl? Well, he says, she's just wonderful. I want to bring her home. I said, fine, bring her home to dinner anytime you want. I'd much rather have him with her in our house. So he brings her home, and she's lovely. And after he took her home, I said, well, tell me about her. Well, he says, you know, she does blah, 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 blah. She's really bright. Eh, there's only one problem. She's a heroin addict. I gulped. I said, really? He said, yeah, she's been clean for three weeks, though. I knew if I said one word against her, she would then become the underdog, and he would make sure that he took her side. So I only said, well, I really hope that her recovery is successful. I really do. You know, people can recover from being heroin addicts. And I'm on my knees sweating bullets and praying. So, not saying a word. So he brings her home regularly. They'd been dating, I'd say, about six months. He says to me, you know, I think I want to ask her to marry me. I said, "Uh, okay. Uh, Remember, you know, your brain is not close to being done yet. So you might want to just breathe a little while and keep dating her. And, you know, if that's your choice, that's your choice. I will accept whoever you marry. But, you know, at uh, 17, come on. Of course, 17-year-olds really think their parents know nothing. I had one guy say to me, you know, I thought my parents were really stupid until I turned about 30, and then I realized how brilliant they were. So we keep, we keep doing this, and I'm thinking, if he marries her, I will have grandchildren with cellular memory for heroin addiction. Now, this is a real problem for me, because as a Christian, I believe people can change their lives with the help of the Lord. It doesn't change their cellular memory. And I'm thinking... You know, I, I would not choose a recovering heroin addict for the mother of my grandchildren. But I might not have, you know, any say in the matter. So a couple more mo- months go by. He's looking at rings. He says, can I borrow money from you, Mom? And I said, unfortunately, I have none to lend. I'm not going to lend him money to buy her an engagement ring. He can earn it. So a couple months later, he comes home, and he is totally dejected. He comes in, and he slumps in the chair and stretches his long legs out in front of him, and he goes, Mom, I got a hard decision to make. I said, so what's the decision? I'm willing to listen. Can't make it for you. I'm willing to listen. He goes, my girlfriend had a heroin relapse last night. And I said, oh, I am so sorry. And I really am. But part of me is going, oh, 
maybe this means he's going to break up with her. But I'm trying not to show anything but empathy. I said, I really, really regret that. You were so hopeful, and she did so well for so long. He goes, Mama, I can't marry her. And I said, really? He goes, no. What if we have three or four children, and I'm at work, and she relapses? Who's going to take care of the kids? I said, you know, I think you're thinking very, very clearly for a 17-year-old. And I honor that, and I know it's hard. But I went to bed, and man, what a relief. <laughs> All right, so some things that you can do to enhance self-care when you're under a lot of stress, which I was. You can manage only what you can label and describe, so don't poo-poo when you're under stress. You know, sometimes people say, oh, that shouldn't be bothering me. Well, if it is, deal with it. But there are no shoulds here. Be brutally honest. You know, that's why I can tell people that being a minister's daughter was the worst experience of my entire life. Period. Everybody in the church knew who I should be and how I should behave, none of which matched who I really was. But, you know, you get a little experience and a little maturity, and you realize, yeah, that, that was really awful. It should not happen to preacher's kids, and no wonder they leave the church that's been so painful for them. Now, having said that, there's some pretty good things about it. Pretty good things about it got to travel around the country. I can't go anywhere on the planet without meeting somebody who I know or we have mutual friends. And I tell people it keeps me from sinning because you're never sure who you're going to meet. <laughs> not that I have any desire to sin. So not everything that is faced can be changed. You know that. But nothing can be changed until it is faced. And I want you to be brave enough to face what you need to face so you can deal with the stress and move on. So what are your, what are your key stressors? See if you can put it in one of those three categories. Is you stress, distress, or mistress? What kind of symptoms do you get when one of those stressors pops up in your life? It's different for different people. I start to sigh. And I listen for that because that clues me. There's some stress here that I've not recognized. Now, I think, Dr. French, that I was pretty good last night. I don't remember sighing. Do you remember hearing me sigh? I don't think I sighed last night. And last night for 30 minutes was really stressful for me as we tried to get things synced. So once you understand that, you can take some deep breaths knowing that ordinarily, you know, that it would put you over the edge. In this third layer, you know, loosely, you've heard of the id, the ego, and the superego. Well, loosely, they can be associated with each one of those three functional brain layers. First layer is the id. When you're down in the id, it's all about me. How can I keep myself safe and anybody I'm responsible for? It is not about you. The ego is aligned with that middle layer where you have all phobias and where you get 
PTSD flashbacks because the person's anxious and afraid and downshifted. And the ego is more, it's not the classic, but it's more like, okay, I need to take care of myself, but all of you are here too. Well, then I guess I better be careful how I'm responding and how I'm acting because my actions will impact you. You can see this in little kids. They're down here and it's, no, you can't play with that. That's mine, 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 my toy. And sometimes 40, 50, 60 year olds. And in this middle layer, you watch them begin to grow because the brain matures from the back to the front and they'll go, that's my toy. Yeah, but you're my friend, so you can play with it. You can't. You're not my friend. But you can. So you begin to see that. And then you get up into that third layer where the superego is, which is all about taking care of yourself and also being able to do something for the good of others, whether or not you feel like it right at the moment. So if you had parents with a good superego and you were crying for the third time that night because you had a bellyache, they could get up out of bed and come and comfort you whether or not they felt like getting out of bed. And if they didn't have a good superego, they might ignore you totally and you just lie there and cry in pain. Or they'd scream at you to shut up because you were disturbing their sleep. Or they might even get out of bed and come in and whack you around a little bit. So self-care is really critical. And we have to teach anybody I've ever worked with who had an addictive behavior how to develop their superego and take care of themselves because they don't. Don't eat right, don't sleep right, don't exercise. It's pretty bad. So in adulthood... You need to get this superego honed. You, in effect, become your own parent. And you reparent yourself if you need to. And, and treat yourself the way you would have liked to be treated if your parents had been capable of doing it. So it's know yourself. And that's very biblical. And Socrates spouted that and a few other people. So what do you, what do you need to take care of you and then you need to invoke your superego and do it. What you don't know you don't know is what usually sabotages us. And that's so critical when we're talking about stress. Are your expectations yours or somebody else? I know that we have expectations for others, but you need to be really careful about looking at those. The, the less I expect from others, the more I get from them. Because I think when I have expectations and they're unrealistic for them, then I think I'm putting out negative electromagnetic energy and they can feel it. So take a look at your expectations. For most of us, we need to tweak them. You know, I grew up with a visual mother uh, minister's wife, of course, and people often were coming to our house to see my father and other things, and she was a nervous wreck if somebody showed up and, and there was a magazine on the coffee table that wasn't square with the edges. Ridiculous. 
she gave up some of those expectations as she got older, but they caused her ulcers for years. She would say, well, what will they think of me? And I go, it doesn't matter. If they are not here to talk to dad and they know that we live here and it bothers them, let it bother them. It'd be their, their problem, not ours. So what are your expectations? Sometimes you can change distress and mistress into you stress by changing your expectations, reframing. You know, I think of reframing as you've got a picture and you take that picture frame off and put a new picture frame on and the picture looks entirely different. So take another look at that event. Can you put a different frame around it so you perceive it differently? My question always is, is it going to make any difference 12 months from now? Is it going to matter? And if the magazines are skewed on my coffee table, it's not going to matter 12 minutes from now, but it's certainly not going to matter 12 months from now. And then I'm not going to put any energy into it. If it is, then that's where I do the serenity prayer. Are you familiar with the serenity prayer? I love the serenity prayer. You know, it basically says, to paraphrase, you know, there's some things I can do something about and make a difference, and then there's some things I can't do anything about and it wouldn't make any difference no matter what I did. Okay, my problem is that sometimes I don't accurately decide which is which. And I need wisdom to decide. Because if I can't do anything about it, I'm not going to address it at all. You know, many of us keep trying to, we keep trying to change things that cannot be changed. And then we get upset. So learn the difference. Here's the stress equation. Stressors interact with the brain in a two-part equation. 20% of the effect to your brain and body is due to the stressor. 80% is due to your perception of the stressor. How important is it? How much weight do you want to put into it? Comes from Epictetus, second century Greek philosopher. I now put this on all my slides if I'm talking about Epictetus because I made the comment once that I'd been to Greece and learned um, about the work of Ep Epictetus and somebody on the front row said, did you meet him? No, I didn't. <laughs> but I didn't have second century up there, so I do now. He said, it's not so much what happens that matters as what you think about what happens. And we know that from physiology and biology now. Remember, you can perpetuate the stress response for hours, days, weeks, or months. So we now call that in the 21st century the 2080 rule. 20% due to the event, 80% due to your perception. Can't do anything about the 20% unless you can avoid it altogether. You can do everything about the 80%. So we finish up with what Shelley Taylor says works for her, and I love the concept. She says, I don't care who you are, you have had a gold medal moment. You have had a time when something really, really wonderful happened. Figure that out. Some of you may have several. What is your gold medal moment? Then, whenever you recognize a stressor, 
whenever you perceive something negatively, just stop, take a deep breath, think of your gold medal moment, and it will usually keep you out of going into one of those stress responses, number one. And number two, it'll help you deal with the 80%. Okay, I think that's it. Good to go? You know how to deal with stressors? <laughs> it, it's a big bite to take at, at one setting, but I encourage you to go to my website, get the slides. If you're male, remember, stress is harder on whose brain? The female brain. If you're female, let the males in your life help you because now they're just going to be wonderful because they understand the difference. And they will never ever say to you again, get over it. They'll say, what can I do to help you to feel less stressed? All right, have a good evening. <laughs>